Please be seated. Taking your Bibles, turn with me to Genesis chapter 17. We continue our reading in the life of Abraham. We come again to Genesis 17 for a second message in this chapter. The reading, therefore, today will be verse 15 to the end of the chapter. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Father, we come before you, O Lord, for you are the one who is full of glory and power. You are the one of might and majesty. You are the one of mercy and grace. And through the, the, the body and the blood of your Son, we have been reconciled to these that are yours. Your power no longer against us. Your grace and mercy no longer far, far from us. Oh Lord, we thank you and we praise you that it was your own zeal that has done this. And that we are in no way interlopers or imposters. We are not the ones who would design so great a salvation. It is all of your doing. These are your works that we rest upon. And so even now we come and rest upon them in prayer and petition. By the mercies of Jesus Christ, we ask that you would help us today to hear and believe your word. We pray, Lord, that we would find ourselves in better condition than wind passing over a rock. We pray that your mighty spirit would indeed penetrate us, illuminate within us, take us captive, subdue us. Oh, Lord, we pray that the master's voice would be the voice we recognize and hear help us. Grant us to recognize the authority speaking herein, your word. And Lord, give us every blessing that belongs to the children of God as they sit at the feet of our high king. Oh Lord, let us receive and help us to keep. In Jesus' name, amen. Genesis 17, verse 15. Verse 15. And God said... To Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man? who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael... I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father twelve princes, and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, 
whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. When he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. Then Abraham took Ishmael his son and all those born in his house or bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day, as God had said to him. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, and Ishmael his son was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised, and all the men of his house, those born in the house, and those bought with money from a foreigner were circumcised with him. This is God's word. When Paul sat down to write about the kind of life he was living as a Christian, he had to describe it this way. Sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. 2 Corinthians 6, verse 10. Sorrowful, but always rejoicing. Paul was a hardcore realist. He had to be. As a minister of the gospel, he would never allow himself to use propaganda, underhanded tricks, marketing language, to make people think the Christian life is easier than it really is. Paul would never cover up the sorrowful part. Sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, that is the whole truth. Sorrowful because the Christian now understands that what is so deeply wrong with the world cannot be fixed by mortal men. Children cannot repair the wrong in themselves. Parents cannot repair it in their children. Citizens cannot repair it in the state. The state cannot repair it in its citizens. And this unyielding wrongness makes us sadder than we have ever been before. Before we became Christians, we had more optimism in man, and so we were less sorrowful. We thought progress and recovery were within man's reach and power. We were wrong. And now we cannot shake the sorrow of it. We now know there are forces at work beyond fallen man's control. The world, the flesh, the devil. As Christians, we also now know the infirmities of our own sin. And we also now know that not all people love God or love his son, or love his word. We now know we live in what scripture calls the present evil age. So just as our savior is called the man of sorrows, we now are sorrowful in ways we never have been. Yet, yet, always rejoicing. There is bedrock underneath the life of the Christian. A bedrock of rejoicing. It is always there. It is always there like faith is always there, like hope is always there, like love is always there. The Christian is now always in possession of a certain kind of joy. Why? Because having become Christians, we now know that God is committed to us. He who has no wrong in him is committed to us. And he is committed to us according to his grace. 
Not according to our abilities or our performance or our potential or our accomplishments. God is committed to us according to his grace. He is making all that is wrong about his elect people, he's making it right. No matter how far off, no matter how dark, no matter how alone, no matter how rejected, no matter how weak, no matter how defective, God is committed to us. This keeps us rejoicing. And it is God's commitment, according to grace, that explains why God makes Abraham wait, wait, wait so long to hear the specific promise of verse 15 and 16 about his wife. I will give you a son by her. Now let's understand, 25 years have passed since the events of Genesis 12, when God first called Abram out of Ur of the Chaldeans. Thirteen of those years have passed since the events recorded in Genesis 16, when Abram and Sarai tried to make a son of promise their own way, using Hagar, the maid. In all that time, Abram never heard God say that Sarah would be the mother of his promised son. The Lord had made Abram wait and wait and wait to hear it. And Sarah, in all that time, had grown quite old. She is now 90. And Abram didn't stop growing. He grew quite old. He is now 99. Like a very long, long bridge, much time had to be crossed before Abraham would hear the promise of verse 16. Much time, but not because God had no power. God could have easily brought Isaac forth from their two bodies decades earlier, but he did not. He did not because it pleased God to testify to something other than just his raw divine power. God wanted testimony to his gospel power. God wanted to lay down in the ancient world a testimony like a great cornerstone to his power in the presence of hopelessness, to his power in the face of the curse, to his power under the great weight of loss, to his power under the great weight of want. Not just divine power, but the power of grace. God wanted to show that where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Romans 5.20. God wanted to further unveil the amazing grace behind the coming salvation of Jesus Christ. He wanted to show that he was committed to saving his chosen servants, not because they were fertile, but because he is rich in grace and generous in grace and liberal in grace. He brings light, not into places of light. He brings light into darkness. Blessings 
Not to those blessed. Blessings to those cursed. Grace to the undeserving. Children to the barren. And did you notice the grace which God will bring into the world through Abraham and Sarah's bodies will not just be some small thing? It will not just be a trickle. It will flood the whole world, the text says. In verse 16, the Lord says, I will bless her and she shall become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. This is why the Lord changes her name from Sarai to Sarah. As an English translation, it sounds the same to us. The first one means princess. Guess what the second one means? Princess. But to the Hebrew ear, it was a clear statement that God was now calling her princess. For she will bring forth a royal line. This is a prophetic forecast that is quite identical to what the Lord had just promised Abraham in verse 6 of the same chapter. The prophecy envisions, of course, the 12 tribes of Israel. The prophecy envisions also King David and King Solomon and many other kings, but ultimately King Messiah himself, Jesus Christ. He will be the great future offspring, the great future son of Abraham and Sarah. The Lord is promising Abraham and Sarah now that they shall have children, they shall have children in all the nations of the earth, not just in Canaan. Their offspring will not just be among the Jews. Their offspring will be among the Greeks and among the barbarians and among the nations of the east and among the nations of the West. How is this possible? Through their one son, Jesus Christ, it is possible. The body and the blood of one of their offspring will unite all God's people as the Spirit applies to all his elect that which the Son has accomplished through his atoning death and resurrection. And faith in that Son will be the evidence of the Spirit's union-creating work between all of these nations and kings to the heavenly and earthly Son of Abraham and Sarah. Beloved, this, is great. this grace is massive. You are, in fact, swimming in it right now as believers in Jesus Christ. You are of their offspring because you share their faith in their great offspring, Jesus You are of their family. You are part of this international, spanning time and space people who are all of one, all children of Father Abraham and Sarai. Now something comes to us in verse 17 that further presses upon us why the Lord is setting down this ancient cornerstone of gospel grace with Abraham and Sarah. Look at verse 17. Everything that the Lord has just said about Sarah is so wonderful, so unexpected, so amazing, so surprising that Abraham, when he first hears of it, he both falls on his face in worship again, 
This is the second time in this one visit. Falls on his face and laughs with joy. This is not the laughter of cynicism. This is not the laughter of unbelief. We will see that come from Sarah in the next chapter. But Paul's commentary on this very passage, these four verses, 15, 16, 17, 18, his commentary on this very scene in Romans 4 tells us that Abraham received this news with faith, not doubt. And he strengthened his faith, even though he looked at his body and his wife's body and said, we are as good as dead, but I guess we'll give it another try. The word strengthened them. The promise strengthened them. Worship and joy are both the scene of verse 17. Worship and joy united. Why? So that the church, by looking right here, might never forget what true worship is and what true joy is. True and pure worship is always the enjoyment of God. That's what verse 17 teaches us. Worship is never just going through the motions of the liturgy. Worship is the enjoyment of God who delights to amaze us sinners by his grace. He's going to do that today when he again gives you the body and blood of his son. Be amazed that Jesus does not withhold his life from you. And what about true and pure joy? It has always come to us, it always comes to us from the adoration and the amazement of God. That also is the scene of verse 17. True and pure joy always comes from the adoration and amazement of God. The highest joy never comes from the thrill of our own accomplishments or the accomplishments of mortals. And don't get tangled up on Abram's laughter, by the way. His laughter is a part for the whole. His laughter is the part, his joy is the whole. That's how the entire scriptures testify to what Abram is doing here. But understand the lesson that the church receives by the Spirit writing this in the word before us. Joy comes from the adoration and amazement of God. When joy fills you at some accomplishment of sport or at some accomplishment of academics, or some accomplishment of art or music, or some personal best, God does not require that you reject such joy. What he requires, rather, is that you see in that joy, you see a witness in it to an even higher joy. That you tell yourself, joy in God's grace is even greater than this. Oh, Lord, lead me to that higher joy. Keep me on that higher joy, oh, Lord. Let not my greatest joys of my soul be my accomplishments, Lord. 
Let this joy I feel over winning the race or winning the game be a witness to me that the adoration and amazement of grace is the true joy of my soul. Human accomplishments will never secure eternal glory for us. The highest joy is the thrill of God's accomplishments. And contrary to all our deserving, contrary to all our deadness, God has made us alive in Christ for us to secure eternal glory through him. And he therefore gives us a joy that will never be taken away. Beloved, this is why the Lord has made them wait. He has made the barrenness that belongs on all the sons of Adam and the daughters of Eve get heavier for Abram and Sarai. He has made the death feel palpable as we watch their lives and none of their own children come forth. He has made us begin to think, has the curse triumphed? Dead wombs belong to dead men and dead women under a dead father named Adam. And so the Lord makes the whole church wait because it is his purpose to testify to us that there is a grace that comes not to the prepared, not to the fertile, not to the fruitful. There's a grace that comes to the dead, and that's the only grace God is giving. Will you be so humble to desire that? Or will you wave your works in his face? Will you wave your record of church attendance in his face? Will you wave the name of your parents and their baptismal certificates in, your, in his face? Or will you own your dead father and your dead mother, Adam and Eve, who brought forth barren children into the world? This alone honors the grace that amazes So the scene of verse 17 is before us. Abraham, on his face before God, full of gladness. It is a scene Israel was never meant to forget. Often they forgot. We are to see in verse 17 that worship is enjoyment in God for the abundant riches of his grace. Listen to how Isaiah brought worship and the enjoyment of God together. Sing, O barren one, who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. For you will spread abroad to the right and to the left, and your offspring will possess the nations." Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced, for you will forget the shame of your youth. Those are the opening verses of Isaiah 54, quoted by the Apostle Paul when he talks about Hagar and Sarah in Galatians 4. Beloved, what did you hear in that call to worship 
I just read from Isaiah? You heard about the very foundations for the highest joy the Christian can obtain. Sorrow is all around us and within us. Did you hear it? The sorrow? We are barren. We are desolate. We have cause to be ashamed. We have cause to be disgraced. Sorrow is all around us and within us, yet God measures out his faithfulness to us according to the riches of his grace, not according to our great spiritual fertility. In fact, we have no spiritual fertility until divine grace casts its warm wing over us and generates life in us. How does such grace then come into the world? Because that's where we are. We are in the world. We are in this present evil age. How does such grace as this come to those in the world? Well, we've been hearing it, haven't we? It comes through a son. Abraham is laughing at the startling, unexpected, dreamlike news of a son. Even the name that is to be given to he and Sarah's son means laugh, or he laughs. That's the translation of Isaac. The Lord is testifying to the joy that his sovereign free grace brings to those who are dead when he comes with his son, a son that will come from the line of Abraham, the line of Isaac, the line of Jacob. Psalm 126 testifies in another place about the great laughter and joy of grace. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. It's like we had left the real world, but we hadn't left the real world. The Lord had done something in the real world that is so unlike the real world of sorrow that it felt like a dream. Continuing, Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Why? Because a son has been given. The offspring of Abraham has been promised and for you and I has now been given. Isaiah 9 even praises God about this son. Unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. Now we know why Rebecca is barren and receives a son by grace. Now we know why Naomi's daughters are barren and Ruth bears a son to Boaz. Now we know why Hannah is barren. The Lord's interest is to testify to all the church throughout history that he will maximize their joy through the grace of a son given. A son who will step into their flesh and bear away the sins of their flesh so that they can step into his grace and bear the title that he has always borne by nature. Sons 
It is the Son who brings the grace that is promised the offspring of Abraham, Jesus Christ, to all the offspring who share in his faith in Jesus Christ. And yes, we need to say it again. Abram had faith in Jesus Christ. In John eight fifty six, in a dispute with the Pharisees, our Lord Jesus said, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. Last time I referenced this verse a month ago, we spoke about the seeing. Well, this morning we must briefly speak about the gladness. I think we are safe to agree with Matthew Henry that the gladness our Lord has just stated in 856 of John's Gospel is the laughter of Genesis 17, verse 17. He was brought to gladness because he saw in the promise Messiah King coming to reverse the curse, coming to recreate the world at the offering of his own body and blood signified by the covenant of circumcision. And so Paul rightly says, we have all been circumcised with a circumcision without hands through the circumcision of Jesus Christ on the cross. So it is the Son who brings this wonderful, amazing, surprising, unexpected grace into the world. He is the one who secures it, and because he will secure it in Abraham's future, it can be promised to Abraham in his present, and he believes it, and he keeps strengthening his faith around it. And Abram, as you watch him over these next uh, five chapters, you will see him walk in the strength and straightness of a stronger faith. You know, this laughter of verse 17 is a laughter that the world has not been able to turn away from. When people read The Lord of the Rings, they delight in the scenes of that book where there's such a jubilant joy that sin and evil has been defeated. And they may not even know why Tolkien put it in the book. But Tolkien was doing his best effort to stamp at the very foundations of Western culture a remembrance of this gospel, that it is only in an amazing act of divine grace at the great cost of the suffering son, that the human soul is truly brought to its highest joy. And it is God who does this. One of the great scenes where he put this in his book is in the third book, Return of the King. This is right after Frodo and Sam have thrown the ring into Mordor. And they think that they are going to be dead on the side of the mountain. For all they know, when they close their eyes, they would open them in death. But instead, they find themselves opening their eyes in a bed and to the voice of Gandalf, who says, Master Samwise, how do you feel? For a moment between bewilderment and great joy, Sam could not answer. At last, 
He gasped. Gandalf, I thought you were dead. But then I thought I was dead myself. Is everything sad going to come untrue? What's happened to the world? A great shadow has departed, said Gandalf. And then he laughed. And the sound was like music or like water in a parched land. And as he listened, the thought came to Sam that he had not heard laughter, the pure sound of merriment, for days upon days without count. It fell upon his ears like the echo of all the joys he had ever known. It is the will of God to set this laughter upon the ears of all his church until the end of the age. You know how we know this? Because God named that baby Isaac. And Sarah, in chapter 21, verse 6, when that boy is in her arms, when she's looking in his face, she says without any cynicism, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. She's talking about the joy of amazing grace, that it is the will of the Almighty to deliver his people from the curse and bring them to his joy. Beloved, with those things said, I have three brief points of application for you. Number one, worship is your purest form of rejoicing. Worship is your purest form of rejoicing. In our worship, we have at the center the lamb who was slain, the divine son, Jesus Christ. In our worship, we are again brought to joy because we hear the name of Jesus. We hear about the blood of Jesus. We see the body in the blood of Jesus. We sing about Jesus. Our worship is son-centered. Which son? The offspring of Abraham, Jesus Christ. Beloved, if you do not think of worship as your weekly service of joy, you need to rethink what your worship is. Worship is not a drudgery or merely a duty. It is the very place to receive again the good news that God has given the Son who brings you out of shadow and death and condemnation. Number two, second point of application. Weakness, barrenness, and failure are bringing you closer to God, not further. The Lord, as I said earlier, made Abram and Sarah wait and feel the weight, different spelling, of the barrenness of their lives. Were they getting further from God? When they foolishly tried to solve their problem with Hagar, were they getting further from God? May it never be. They were sinning against God, but they could not get further. They were getting riper for the power of God alone to perform what he had promised. And so we are greatly helped to hear Paul say, 
The Lord Jesus said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Let me ask you, men. Let me ask you, ladies and children. Do you have a day, a week, perhaps, a month? Or maybe this is the year where you keep telling yourself, I am a failure. My life is barren. I am useless, fruitless. I should just disappear. You are blessed. You are blessed if you hear what I am about to say. The power of God is near the brokenhearted, not near the self-satisfied. If the Lord has brought you to lowliness, barrenness, fruitlessness, that is exactly where he wants you to call on him. He does not need a down payment for his grace. Number three, and finally, congregation, remember the birth of Christ, the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ is the greatest thing that has ever happened to you. It is the greatest thing that has ever happened to you. The son that has been given is the greatest thing that you possess. Because having received the Son from God, not because you were ready for him, not because you were prepared for him, not because you deserved him, but having received the Son from God in his office as prophet, priest, and king, you have received a commitment from God to deal with you according to his grace, always and forever. In other words, well, Romans 8.31 says it, in other words, if God is for us, who can be against us? When we had nothing, God gave us everything. He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will God, having given us his son, not graciously give all things to us? Of course he will. There is nothing in all creation Nothing outside creation that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And when God lays this truth of his grace down like bedrock under your soul, you will always be rejoicing. You will always be able to hear the music of the age to come. The eternal glory of Christ's kingdom will always cast a light into your soul. And with God as your heavenly father, you will always have this nagging suspicion that the weaker you are in the world, the closer you are to Christ, displaying and resting his gracious power on you. Beloved, this is your great possession. The son has been given. Let us give thanks. Our gracious God and father, The center of our text today is the center of the Bible, that a son is promised and a son is given. And this son is given to us in the same way Isaac was given, 
not by the fertility of the parents, not by the readiness of the parents, not by the goodness of the parents, but by the grace of God. Lord, we thank you that the son who is given by grace can in no way be lost by works. This is like a million dollars to our soul. Oh Lord, we pray that we would see how rich you have made us and that we would not be overcome by the sorrows that are near. That we would not be overcome by our accomplishments which are near, but that we would be overcome by the grace that is near. We thank you for your beloved son. In Jesus' name, amen.